This is Learn From Others, where we interview a cross-section of successful individuals so you can learn from their experiences, achievements, and even their mistakes. We ask four questions that will educate and inspire. Greg Stanley will be your guide as we join our guests on a journey from adolescent daydreaming to success in today's world. Join us on this adventure as we learn from others together. Welcome to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. I'm very excited to introduce our special guest today, Chris Gerg. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you for asking. Awesome. Well, before we find out what you're actually doing today, if you would, could you please tell me what you want to be when you grew up? I was in the Air Force and was, you know, since the time I was born. And so we lived all over the place. But my, my plan was to be uh, a helicopter pilot in the Marine Corps, but had an accident in the fourth grade and lost sight in my right eye. And so I couldn't go in the military. And and actually, that dream was backburnered uh, until about a few months ago when I started getting my private pilot's license. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So one of your dreams when you're a little kid is kind of finally coming to fruition. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's awesome. That, that must have been rough when you are a little kid, wasn't it? It was It was pretty ugly. Yeah. It was. We were playing long story, but, but we ended up digging some pool cues out of a dumpster behind the youth, youth center at on the Air Force Base I was on. And... Uh, we were throwing them around, and I got hit with one of them. Wow. I still have the eye. I just can't see out of it. Wow. Yeah, that is rough. Wow. So once your dream to become a helicopter pilot was no longer, did you have another dream that popped up when you were a little kid? No. I, I hunted around for a while. It was always about airplanes and always about astronaut and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I actually was, was thinking about being an actor. I was always in theater. When I was in sixth grade, I was in a role with the Omaha Metropolitan Theater. We were in Omaha, Nebraska at the time. So I think I think that was it. Okay. Yeah. So your dream to become a helicopter pilot got derailed, and then you maybe wanted to become an actor. So tell us, what do you do today? <laughs> I'm... Uh, <laughs> I'm a chief information security officer and vice president of risk management for uh, an information security company. So that's quite a departure from either one of those two. So if you would, could you tell me a little bit about how you got into what you do today and your career path? Well, I uh, in in high school, I I took some computer classes. I was also in in theater and choir and you know that kind of stuff. But the thing that really lit a fire under me was was the computer classes. And so I did some programming and did, did every computer class they had. And was, it was in the days before there was kind of computer clubs, but uh, was was really involved with that and really involved with games and gaming and that kind of stuff. And so it was kind of a natural fit and I ended up going to college for management computer systems where it was all programming. And I decided I didn't want to be a programmer and became a high school teacher or was learning to be a high school teacher when I ended up getting a more of a systems job with Microsoft doing phone tech support for Windows 95, and that's kind of where my IT career got started. It lit a fire in my belly, and uh, I, I just had a knack for systems and networks and that kind of thing. And so I, I don't know if you want me to go through my whole career, but I can kind of take you down the path. Yeah, if you would, kind of tell us how that role led to you know the next few roles where you ended up where you are today. Okay. I was a kind of a serial monogamist, honestly. I didn't, I didn't, a lot of people in, in IT and, and in technology industries kind of, kind of hop from job to job. I usually spent at least five years somewhere um, before an opportunity would arise. But so I, I, the, the phone tech support was for Windows 95's launch. And my first call on third shift was, I want you to get this crap off of my computer. Oh, wow. And uh, so I kind of questioned myself at that point a little bit, but it, it turned out okay. In the very old days, had a Commodore 64 with a 300 baud modem and spent a lot of wow. time with, with modems and telecommunications and that kind of stuff. And so 
I kind of got into a second and third level support role uh, with that job. And so it wasn't, I, I wasn't on the, on the front line for very long. I was helping other people who were on the front line pretty quickly. And that led down a path where, you know, when, once Windows, 90, Windows 95's launch was kind of, the launch was done and they were kind of in more of a maintenance mode. You know, the Microsoft way is hire a bunch of contractors and let them go. I got the early warning of that from some people I knew who were like Microsoft full-time employees. Um, I was offered a job. I didn't take it because I didn't want to move to Seattle at the time. But I, I uh, became a systems administrator. My MCSE goes back to Windows NT 3.1. So if, if any of the gray-haired listeners of your podcast hear that, they'll know <laughs> that that's, that's old. I became a systems administrator, became a network engineer, uh, and then uh, a friend of mine was was putting together a pen testing team, so a, a, a group of people that break into computers with white hats on. They don't do it for bad purposes. They use their powers for good, not evil. And so I was a pen tester for three and a half years um, and ended up moving to the other side of the table as the company I was working for was building out a data center and needed someone to manage their network security um, I did a lot of uh, intrusion detection work as part of that role um, and ended up writing a book. O'Reilly & Associates is that company that writes the technical manuals with the animals on the covers. And I wrote one of those books, Managing Network Security with Snorton IDS Tools. That was in 2004. And parlayed that into a role as uh, kind of more of a security architect uh, and then a product manager for intrusion detection for a company that ended up getting bought. And I was, uh, it was a company that, that did credit card security work. Uh, and I was director of QA for uh, all the assessors that do PCI DSS assessments and ended up becoming the chief information security officer for that company. Um, and since that time, it's pretty much been chief information security officer. At, at one point, I was in a combined role of uh, chief information security officer and uh, VP of infrastructure. So all of IT rolled up to me, and it was because they were kind of three companies bolted together uh, and and had a lot of work to do. I had a lot of rebuilding, consolidation, and standardization to do. And so I kind of I kind of rested control of of all of IT so that we could rebuild everything um, because it's always a good idea to build security uh, from the ground up instead of trying to bolt it on uh, at, at the last phases of a project. So I did that, handed it off, and and became a consultant and. Um, uh, the company I work for now is they kind of grew out of a, an incident response uh, thing that's the bulk of the company. But you know the last the last conversation we have after uh, you've had a breach or ransomware or something is clearly we had some issues. How can we keep this from happening again in the future? And so that's why I'm with the company I'm with right now and uh, I'm running the running a team of proactive information security and risk management folk uh, and trying to help people not have to talk to the nice people on our incident response team. Right, right. Okay, so tell me what that looks like. So you had the incident, now let's clean it up, and now you're going to the, let's get ahead of these before they occur, correct? Right, or or we're at the end of it and let's keep it from happening again. But um, the, the company I work for, Tetra Defense, started out as uh, a company called Gilware in 2003, and uh, they did data recovery stuff. So if your hard drive fails or, or if your systems fail, um, it led them into kind of the backup software thing, and they wrote a, a, a front end for an existing backup solution, and, and that part of the company got bought, leaving the data recovery folks uh, behind and as their own entity and that that company would take hard drives apart and take the platters out and read the data off of failed hard drives or um, I've seen them scrape the epoxy off a memory chip and micro solder into the actual chip to pull data off of a memory card so um, very technical very 
you know, uh, people who are absolute experts in file systems and that kind of thing, the real technical stuff. And they, they ended up uh, hiring a person uh, who's kind of an internationally recognized expert in, in digital forensics. Her name's Cindy Murphy, and she, she had started a, a cybercrime lab for a police department here in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, started a digital forensics uh, branch of the data recovery business. And um, that digital forensics uh, led to incident response stuff. So if you got hacked or you got ransomware or whatever it was, uh, wire transfer fraud, um, they would step in and help you figure out what happened and, and uh, usually work with an insurance company, which which we're very, we work very closely with now. So if you have cybersecurity insurance and, and you get hacked, these days it's almost always ransomware, you'll call your insurance company, they'll call uh, uh, an attorney, privacy counsel, and then they'll call us. And we're on the, on the panels for a lot of insurance companies, in fact, most of them, so that if, uh, you know, you call your insurance company, they have a list of people they call for incidents. And to give an idea just how, how big that is and what a what an issue it is, we got a call the other day from an insurance company and uh, they said they called 10 other incident response firms that are on their panel and none of them are taking cases because they're all at capacity. And wow. I can back that up. I mean, we've, we've hired 12 people-ish in the last few months. We're going to probably be over 60 on that team by the end of the year. And, uh, you know, my team's growing alongside with them. And, and it's I, I feel really lucky um, that we have these these experts and they're astonishingly smart, capable people. I, 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 I say that I, I kind of have the answers to the exam before I sit the test because um, if I'm talking with organizations about what they should be prioritizing or what they should be worried about, I know firsthand what what's happening right now with organizations who are suffering breaches and attacks. So it lets me sound really, really smart when I'm at, at client sites and helping them prioritize things. Right, right. Now, if you would, could you talk just to, to our students as far as what ransomware is, uh, what it does, and how you can protect yourself against it? Absolutely. And there's a lot of misconceptions about it. And, you know, I've been in this industry for 20 years now, and it was eye-opening to see kind of what's going on uh, under the hood and behind the scenes. So ransomware is a kind of malware, a kind of virus sort of thing, a, a malicious bit of software. The misconception is that you get malware in your email, you get an attachment, you double click it, or you go to a website, and you double click it, and all of a sudden your company's got malware or it has ransomware. And and that's just not how it works. It's it's really a, a conventional hack that's been easily monetized. And what what they do is they get in your environment somehow, whether it is a website or it's it's a, an email or you've got some kind of service open to the public internet, whether it's a web server or an unpatched VPN is one that's common. Uh, one that hits all the time recently is uh, Microsoft Remote Desktop RDP is the is the the acronym for it. Um, if you have that open to the public internet, if you're if anyone takes anything out of this podcast it's don't do that please um, because you, it's just a matter of time before you end up with ransomware and and so what happens is they get their foot in the door with with one of these one of these issues the email or the vulnerability or uh, whatever it ends up being and and what that is is just getting literally getting their foot in the door and and these organizations are are large and organized and very clever and so they've got multiple teams in their organization. And I wish I was kidding, but it's, they, they really run like, like corporations. They have a team that, that gets the foot in the door, and then they hand that off to an exploitation team. And that exploitation team will take that foot in the door and then install their Swiss Army knives of hacking tools and explore your network, 
explore your systems, find what I call the soft, chewy center of your company, um, and, and also find your backup. And the reason for that is, is once they, once they uh, find and map out everything, and, and especially your backups, they will then hand that off to their ransomware team. And the ransomware team will then deploy ransomware in your environment. And the ransomware looks at important files, looks at important databases in your backups, and they will encrypt them with a secret key uh, using a very robust bit of software that just presents a message on your screen that says you've been infected with ransomware, your important files have been uh, encrypted. If you want to decrypt them, send 10 Bitcoin to this Bitcoin wallet and respond to this email address with the fact that you've, that you've you know, sent us the money, the cryptocurrency. Um, and once they do, they will send you the decryption key and you can unencrypt or decrypt all of these files. Um, the reason they do the backups is if you, if you can't get to your backups, you're faced with two months of downtime while you're trying to rebuild all of your servers or you pay the ransom. And so it just increases the chances of you, you paying the ransom. So it, it is a little bit scary. I try not to be kind of a fear monger, but it's, it's rampant right now. And uh, they're very successful at making money doing it. Right. Yeah. That's really scary <laughs> for sure. Well, if you could, could you talk to a little bit about your average work week or month and how the geopolitical crisis such as we have going now between us and Iran could impact your business. I'm lucky. The the incident response folks, you know, usually these incidents come in at, at 4.30 in the afternoon on a Friday. And so mm -hmm. a lot of times our incident response team is working all weekend. Um, we, we've got enough people on our team now that we can kind of have an on-call rotation. So someone's working on the weekend, but not everybody, which is a good thing. My, my week is usually a fairly conventional week. Uh, the work we do is uh, largely kind of assessment work or maybe some technical testing. Uh, we do a lot of kind of trusted advisor work so that we are a kind of CISO as a service, if you want to say that, and we will uh, work, you know, kind of normal business hours. I, I My wife gets mad at me, but I do, I, I do fairly often work on the weekends, if only because I like what I do. Um, and we have deadlines with these reports and that kind of thing. But we also are, are exploring opportunities with some of the tools we use in our incident response um, and some of the foundational things that you should be doing from an information security perspective so you don't get ransomware and other things. Um, we're looking at, at making that kind of more of a managed service where instead of us having a security operations center, we, we have some foundational things that we can help you do and we can leverage our experience on the incident response side uh, to be very efficient in the in the tools that you use to protect yourself. And so we're exploring those things. So I do a lot of kind of dreaming and whiteboard brainstorming. And uh, we have some very, very strong business development and technical business development folks to kind of, and product development folks to, to kind of, I think we're really close to something pretty interesting. Um, as far as as far as the the geopolitical climate, we've already seen it have an effect on a, on a couple of our cases. I obviously can't say names, but uh, we had uh, a ransomer come in and have an initial ransom. Um, they had encrypted the backups. The insurance company said, "I think we have no choice but to try to negotiate with the ransomer to get the decryption key because." Uh, you know, we can be back in a matter of days or it's going to be months. And, and frankly, you know, it's a, it's a business decision that the, rant, uh, the insurance companies say, 
boy, you know, we're, we're, our payout's going to be for two months of work instead of just paying this $50,000 ransom. And so we were talking to the ransomer, and the ransomer said, no, the U.S. attacked Iran, and in solidarity with that, we're going to double the ransom. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And that's happened, that's happened a couple times now. Our suspicion is that the, we're dealing with the same people, but that's, that's a real effect of, of a, a political decision. And, and I won't talk religion, politics, or operating systems all for the same reason. But, but that's a, you know, the, the decision to do that aside, that there are real world effects that are affecting real world people that we're dealing with. Right, right, for sure. And that's a great example. I was wondering about that as I see it in the news. You know, they're talking about cybersecurity a lot. So it's very timely that you're on this podcast. So thank you for that. Right. And some of those advanced, the, those threat agents, they call them, um, where they, they kind of are identifying the groups that are behind uh, these attacks, if for no other, if, if by no other way than just the techniques they use, um, there's a couple of them that are, are pretty prevalent that are rumored to and, ex- and suspected strongly to uh, be uh, government funded by Iran. Um, wow. And so I guess it's not surprising that that would happen. Right, right. Wow. Okay. As a reminder, you can check out all previous episodes at learnfromothers.org. And if you're an educator or a student, you can search for podcasts by Career Cluster. So, Chris, we learned what you wanted to be when you grew up and what you do today. So looking back on your career, what would you do differently? I actually was working as a chief information security officer, and I had someone in a network operations center come up to me and and asked a question in a kind of innocent way, but it kind of rubbed my fur the wrong way until I kind of (laughs) realized what it was they were asking. They said, what book do I need to read to do your job? And, Mm. And I kind of went, I mean, come on, man, you know, that's a little insulting. But then I thought he's just asking and, and just in a, in a, uh, not a, an elegant way. I'd like to do your job. I think you have a cool job. How do I do it? So I, I kind of right. <laughs> let my fur stand down and I said, well, you know, if there was a, if there was a faster way to do it, I think I would have done it. But the bottom line is, uh, I, I think I would have tackled things a little earlier and done some of the foundational things that I ended up learning earlier. And, and if you're going to be in information security, it's some kind of universal things that you should know. You know, you have to break a lot of things to learn how they work. But just the basics of networking are a huge deal. There's a Cisco certification called the CCNA. And I did that pretty early. And I, I, I use that every day. I use the information I learned about what IP addresses are and, and how computers talk to each other pretty much every day. I use the, the information I learned about how operating systems work. When in the early days of intrusion detection, the the CPUs and the computers just couldn't keep up with the volume. And so you had to kind of cut things up and farm things out to multiple computers. And I, I was compiling my own kernels for FreeBSD computers and, and Linux computers um, so that they were really stripped down and super, super fast because they, they just couldn't keep up with the workload we were throwing at them. And I learned a lot about how computers work doing that. So I think I think that's what I would I would do differently is I would have done that stuff earlier. Some of the stuff I was I was kind of intimidated by um, but through necessity, I, I had to learn them. So, you know, I, w- I would learn, you don't have to be a programmer, but be an effective computer, even systems person, you're going to have to learn some scripting. And, right. and that really is coding. Again, in the dawn of time, I was learning Pascal and that sort of thing and a bunch of Perl scripting. Now everything's Python. So I, I would have learned Python a lot earlier. I was kind of kind of hesitant to jump into that because I kept telling myself I wasn't a programmer. But I learned that if I did something for the third time and I hadn't scripted it, it was a little foolish. So stitching together a bunch of tools 
that I've downloaded through Python scripts. Um, PowerShell is now huge in the Windows world. So that that I think is what I would have done differently. I wouldn't have been I wouldn't have put myself into a specific swim lane so much. I kept saying I'm a systems person or a network person. I'm not a programmer. Um, turns out that the programming made my systems and networking life a lot easier. Right. No, that's really, really great advice. Well, now let's talk to the student who is in college who would like to do what you do. So define that as you will. Uh, what advice would you give them? I mean, I know you went over a good list right there, but is there anything else you would recommend for the college student to do at this time? When I was in college, when you were going to get a CS degree, uh, computer science degree, it was really all just programming. Fortunately, now there's there's a lot of uh, a lot of systems level things, and, and it is kind of a different a different mindset. It's just now I'm involved with a with a few apprenticeship programs and some master's level cybersecurity programs out there, kind of on an, on advisory panels and advisory boards for those those programs. My advice would be try to find something that that really lights that fire in your belly. Um, I ended up kind of going heading down the path of being a high school teacher just because I wasn't loving what I was doing. Um, and, and a lot of people I've worked with in, in cybersecurity specifically are have come from a lot of different backgrounds, whether it's philosophy or mathematics. I've worked with people that had their Russian their master's in Russian literature. I've worked with people who had their master's in complexity theory, which is a branch wow. of, of, of math. A guy who was really into combinatorics, which again is, is math. A guy who had uh, his master's in you hear the masters a lot in uh, philosophy, and and really what it ends up being is is that the cybersecurity and information security is is less a skill set, more of a mindset. It's kind of an approach to taking the step back and saying, what are we missing here? Or I call it proactive troubleshooting. If I make this change, what's going to happen? And so I think I could I think I could train people to be good cybersecurity and information security people, but they they kind of have to have that that mindset of I don't know everything and I I need to learn something and also that that proactive troubleshooting of of taking a step back and saying what's the big picture here what are we trying to accomplish is there a clever way for us to do it so my advice i think is is do something you really like my daughter is an artist and i told her that if she ends up with her degree in art and uh ends up making a living doing art she's going to be one of the few people i've met that has gone to school for something that's actually doing the thing they went to school for. Um, and so dis don't, don't discount the things that you learned that aren't in class. Yeah, and I've done over 100 of these interviews, and I think two of them were a straight line to the career. All the others were <laughs> windy roads, you know, to you, you eventually end up doing what you love, hopefully. And someone yeah. once told me, do it now because you're going to do it anyways, <laughs> right, whether it's a right. hobby or whatever. So. Right, and have those hobbies, too. I saw some chart that was one of those Venn diagrams where it had uh, – the idea was that a, a fully realized person and a fully uh, happy person will have have these things. They're the thing they love, the thing they do, and uh, the thing they're interested in. And if you can, it might have been something else. But the the overlap was was the fully realized person. And sometimes the the thing you love and is the thing you do, and then great. Um, but right. if you are like I do photography on the side, that's my hobby. I do astronomy on the side. Now I'm flying on the side. And, and those, those are all things that, that I don't do for a living, but, but make me a happy person, um, apart from the relationships I have with people. And so, oh, that was a third. Happy person is going to have a blend of their hobbies meeting their needs and meeting the things they love. Because sometimes it's the hobby. You do those things for you. Um, I don't sell my photography. I did for a little while, but but I really do it because I love doing it. But if, if you can find that blend where if you're not getting what you need in your career, have a hobby. Right, right. No, that's really, really great advice. 
Well, are there any current projects you're working on that you would like to share? I mean, we're essentially a startup at this point, and that's the biggest project we're working on. I'm I'm really, really trying to take the lessons learned in the incident response world and, and having a really focused approach to information security. And I'm not going to say it's disruptive and, and, and going to flip over all the apple carts, but you can boil it down to four or five things that if you're, if, if organizations are doing these four or five things, their risk is really, really reduced. And we're trying to distill that down into a, a regimented approach that's repeatable and effective and, and getting the word out there that, that we're a company that does that well and that you should, if you're already in cybersecurity and you like doing those things and the things that I've talked about are exciting, reach out to Tetra Defense because we've got we've got opportunities at a variety of roles, both the low level, the kind of introductory level, uh, entry level is the word I'm looking for, uh, roles, you know, doing file system analysis and, and, and digging through stuff, but learning a lot to the, the higher level, you know, people with a little bit of gray in their hair who uh, have broken a lot of things and have learned doing it, who are good proactive troubleshooters to help other organizations not have to go through the pain that I've been through and other people are going through. Well, cool. Well, thank you for taking us on your career journey today. What's the best way for listeners to learn more about you or your company? Well, you can send an email to me directly, and I may regret this, but C-G-E-R-G, C-G-E-R-G at tetradefense.com. You can just go to tetradefense.com to our website and get a hold of us that way, or Reach out to me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Chris. Thank you. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to Learn From Others, where we help others succeed by sharing success. Where will our next adventure take us? Subscribe to find out. If you know of someone who has a cool career story or occupation, contact Greg through Instagram at Greg Stanley LFO. That's G-R-E-G-S-T-A-N-L-E-Y-L-F-O. And we will see you soon as we learn from others together.